From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. 12.35 on this Monday afternoon. Well, the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Chris Freeland, put out a release yesterday saying that the federal government is going to extend the ban on foreign home purchasing in this country. This was something that was first brought in in 2022. According to this release, it will now be extended until the beginning of 2027. So the ban means foreign nationals, commercial enterprises cannot purchase residential property in this country. There are some exceptions. The government saying that by extending the foreign buyer ban, this will ensure houses are used as homes for Canadians. But is it actually having a significant impact? Joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Brendan Ogmanson, Chief Economist at the BC Real Estate Association. Brendan Ogmanson, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Uh, what are your thoughts on the extension of the ban? Well, it's a policy that was implemented without any data or evidence, uh, and it's been extended without any data or evidence. So, so not not terribly surprising. So, is it something that sounds good and sounds like it's making a difference, but maybe in in reality, it either maybe it's not, or we don't know. Well, it's 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 supposed to be uh, to help affordability. Uh, in 2023, basically as soon as the ban was in place, prices have done nothing but, but rise. I mean, they, they went up about, about 10% for the first few months of the year and then kind of flattened out uh, in 2023. In 2022, if we just kind of look at the data for you know how many, what the share of, of sort of dollar volume was for uh, non-resident investors. In 2022, it was around 1.5%. In 2023, after the ban, it was about 1.1%. And on how you define uh, these things, so not not a huge difference. And meanwhile, you know, we're probably never had uh, so many affordability challenges. So, pretty hard to say this policy is is uh, is a solution of any kind. Right, because even looking at the numbers and what you've touched on as well, that it is a relatively small share when we look at the overall housing market. And uh, I think even if you look at the percentage of foreign ownership across the country, it's even lower in BC or was even lower in BC before the ban even came into place. Yeah. And if, if you look at like what, what, what's really problematic is if we, if we have foreign investors who are leaving homes vacant, like it's, it's fine if we have, to me, it's fine if we have investors that are supplying like rental stock, which is, you know, we invest in in, uh, in condo buildings, and they, they you know end up being rent on the secondary market. What the problem would be is we if we had a lot of non-resident investors leaving homes vacant. Uh, I think you know with the speculation vacancy tax data, the share of non-resident owned and vacant homes is like zero point one percent of of all homes in in BC. So it's clearly not not an issue. That would be cool if that was zero, but zero point one is pretty close to zero. Um, so it's. It's just these, these policies are really addressing the significant problem. Um, they are very popular. If you, you know, when you poll the public, they, you know, most of them, an overwhelming majority in most cases, will tell uh, uh, surveyors that foreign investment is a big problem in the housing market. So that's why we have these policies. It's not about addressing an actual problem. It's about addressing a problem that they are perceived by the public. 
and you touched on something there, and and it's this idea of homes, houses, uh, in in uh, all kinds of housing being left empty. But isn't that why there are other policies uh, in BC and many parts of BC? There's the the empty homes or the speculation tax. Uh, if you have a housing in Vancouver, you're filling out those forms twice because there's also the empty homes tax in Vancouver. Aren't those policies supposed to be combating this? Yeah, so you know, it, before those policies came in into place, I, I recall at the time there was a lot of, of kind of mystery about how many vacant homes there were in in BC. Now we have a, quite a lot of data. Even the first speculation vacancy tax data revealed that probably weren't as many empty homes as, as I originally thought. So, but we do have those policies in place. We have lots of policies in place to deal with uh, non-resident investors. We have a very high tax rate. Uh, we have all types of vacancy taxes. So. There's already policies in place, at least in BC, to to address these issues, um, and and really, like the foreign buyer ban at a national level is not really about Saskatchewan or Manitoba. It's about BC, primarily BC and Ontario, uh, which already have foreign buyers taxes in place. So, you know, this it's it's, it's interesting that they they extended the, the tax. Um, there's not really any any objective stated or targets what they would like to see uh, from this 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 ban. So. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, but, but again, I'm sure it, it's. Uh, I'm sure it's popular. What else could be done? Do you think? Like you said, even with the ban in place, it's not as though. And and also under the the idea of housing affordability, it's not as though housing has become more affordable. What could be perhaps a better approach? Are we talking about housing starts? About supply? What else do you think? Or what should be focused on? I think. Basically, everyone has now coalesced around the idea that we really need to build a lot more housing to affect affordability. The big problem in housing markets that I call the, the cruel asymmetry of housing markets is that demand acts really fast. So we can see affordability uh, be, be, be deteriorate very quickly when demand shocks hit. And supply takes a really long time. So you know, the, the rise in home prices that we saw uh, from like 2020 to 2022 like two years, really challenged affordability, and to undo that effects with supply, it might take like 10 to 15 years. Like things are a really long time to build, um, especially to build the quantity that we need. So it's in a really tough situation. The only way to fix it long term is to build a lot more housing. Uh, we've tried all kinds of things to lower demand, uh, all types of taxes. We've had now you know, the pretty restrictive monetary policy for the past couple of years that drove mortgage rates to their highest levels in 15 years. We're doing lots of things on the demand side, uh, but ultimately to fix things long term, we just need to build more homes. That's going to take a really long time. How would you describe the market right now? I know when we track sales and supply and demand, whether it's a buyer or a seller's market, how would you kind of sum, summarize how things are in, in BC and Metro Vancouver and even the Fraser Valley right now? We're still in this, this sort of low activity balanced market. So sales are, are lower than historical averages. New listings are lower than historical averages. The total amount of inventory is, is pretty low. I think that's going to change. Um, you know, there's been some pushback recently on, on when rate cuts might happen and in what magnitude. But I still think we're going to get rates falling. You know, the Bank of Canada is going to be cutting. We've already seen mortgage rates come down quite a bit. I think that's going to lead to a lot of the pent-up demand that we've seen, you know, build up over the past year, start to flood into the market in, in kind of the spring. We're already kind of hearing like some changes in expectations about the market, changes in consumer sentiment. So, 
January was a little slow. I think we'll see things pick up into the spring and and, uh, and then and, and continue into the summer and the fall. We probably will have uh, actual rate cuts by then. And how much, even if it's say a point or two points of, of the rate going down, how how big of a change or how big of an impact does that kind of does that prompt a lot of people to move when maybe they've been sitting waiting for this? As we saw last year, it, sometimes it doesn't even take the Bank of Canada actually cutting rates for real like sentiment in the market's change. Just expectations uh, tend to tend to be reflected in the resale market very quickly. So this happened last year when the Bank of Canada said that they were on a conditional pause uh, in January of 2023. They would ultimately start raising rates again. But when they said they were on pause, we saw sales go from about 30% below normal levels back to like normal, which felt like a surge in, in sales where you know, we're just getting back to normal levels. Uh, if we get sort of that same change in sentiment and it's, really, it's backed up by, you know, it really looks like the Bank of Canada is going to be cutting rates, we could see a very similar pattern where we go from, say, you know, right now, like 15, 20% below normal to slightly above average. If we don't have the inventory in the market to, to absorb all that extra demand, we're going to start to see some upward pressure on prices. But, but we can definitely see a really strong response to, uh, to just changes in expectations about what the Bank of Canada is going to do. Hmm. Do you think we're anywhere near, do we have the inventory? Uh, no, it's very low. So it's accumulated slightly over the past year simply because sales have been pretty slow. But in Vancouver, I think we had the lowest new listing since like 2003. So there weren't a lot of people out selling. So if we're going to have sales coming back and that pent-up demand comes off the sidelines, we really need people out also selling their homes. I think that's going to happen. There's like a number of reasons why you know, I think that new listings will, will normalize this year. But that really needs to happen to kind of keep a lid on price growth this year. All right. Well, we will be watching to see what happens there. Brendan Ogmanson, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. The future of the Park Board is going to be discussed at a Park Board meeting later this evening. Park Board Commissioner Tom Digby bringing forward a legal motion saying that the mayor's plans to dismantle the board are unconstitutional. And Park Board Commissioner Tom Digby joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Jill. Nice to be here. What specifically are you bringing forward to the board tonight? Yeah, so this motion tonight is uh, is narrowly focused. Uh, you know, we're responding to the mayor's surprise attack uh, that we received in December. Just, you know, someone picked a fight with us on the street. And um, so we're responding. Uh, we have multiple lines of attack to respond, but one of them is the legal line. So uh, we think that the mayor is acting way outside of his uh, authorized jurisdiction under the Vancouver Charter. Um, and uh, we've had informal legal advice that that would probably be a strong case if we were to bring it. So this is just... Uh, uh, this motion is to put the park board in a position uh, to uh, fight this uh, unprovoked attack from this mayor. Uh, so the motion uh, called independent legal advice for judicial review of mayor's motion uh, being presented, if it is accepted and you go down this route, do you know what this is going to cost? Uh, we are putting a very uh, modest sum on it. You know, we're, hopefully we wouldn't have to spend any of this money. We are asking for $20,000 from the Park Board General Fund. 
um, to uh, plan and prepare for this. Um, we think that that's, you know, for a bit of background, historically, the Park Board has from time to time had to retain its own council uh, separate from the city. Uh, so the most recent time was in 2015. There were some jurisdictional disputes and uh, there have been disputes prior to that. This is uh, fairly routine for a Park Board to get its own separate council. Uh, we picked a number, $20,000. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, if the mayor realizes the error of his ways, that this is a completely um, unconstitutional, as you say, uh, approach. And um, it really is, it's, uh, it may be unconstitutional, but more than that, it's just outside of any authorized uh, scope that he's allowed to operate under. Imagine if he were to say, uh, Jill, he wanted to take over the, uh, you know, the, the city council of Richmond uh, and said, you know, he had all these reasons why he thought that was a really good idea. People, you'd say, well, you'd say that's crazy, right? You'd say, and uh, it's exactly the same thing here with the park board. He has no authority to be doing this. Um, I mean, it's not exactly the same thing. It's not like the City Council of Richmond gets its funding from Vancouver City Hall or has to work in tandem with Vancouver City Hall. The City Hall in Vancouver and the Park Board are, are very closely aligned. That, that's right. And for 135 years, every mayor and every park board has found a, a method to work together. And, you know, from time to time, the protocol of engagement has to be revised and updated. And we're totally willing to do that. We've totally accepted the auditor's report for some financial improvements on our side at the park board. We're ready to work with this mayor as we have for 135 years previously. But uh, to your example, um, the, the, the fundamental similarity between those examples with the city of Richmond is that this is statutory okay it's in the rules in victoria and so we're taking our battle actually up to victoria that's where the decision lies on whether or not uh the vancouver city council can take over the park board and i like i'm not sure why um uh, premier eb i mean he's got a lot of his own problems up there i'm not sure why he'd want to pick this one up as a, as an issue uh with an upcoming election um and uh, Jill, you, you know, there's fundamentally, there's a much bigger issue, which is the negotiation with the First Nations, okay? They have a primary right to be involved in any of these discussions. Um, it's uh, They have a long list of concerns about how uh, the city manages its parks. And, um, you know, we're working with them actively every day on that. Um, and we're keen to continue that work. Um, so it's it's not this is not going to happen fast, and I don't see how the mayor can just thinks that the it's victorious is going to knock us out with a stroke of the pen. Right. So, but like you said, it does take a change in legislation that would have to come from Victoria. So, if already there are at least two First Nations that are at least calling for a review, this isn't a done deal. Why do you have to spend twenty thousand dollars getting legal advice? Uh, yeah, so our legal uh, point is a very narrow legal point, and it's a, a small part of the overall picture of, I, I mean, mostly it's a political negotiation, isn't it? Does, um, you know, for 135 years, this board has, has listened to people Vancouver and built some of the most iconic parks in North America. And now the mayor says, well, we don't need that. Uh, this is uh, we we want citizen participation. We the citizens we've built this. Our parents built it. Our grandparents. The First Nations are now actively helping us build this. Um, so we think that the Park Board has a continuing role um, and, and a, a bright future. And uh, to think it's going to go anywhere fast is uh, is just it shows kind of a rookie mayor who maybe hasn't thought this through about how long and how hard it is to get things done. Um, it takes time. All right. Well, we will be waiting or watching to see what happens uh, with this motion tonight and moving forward. Commissioner Tom, Dig Tom Digby, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jill.
Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, earlier on in the show, I played for you some of what the police chief in London, Ontario, said earlier today at a news conference. He made a point of apologizing to the woman at the centre of a sexual assault case against five former members of Canada's World Junior Hockey Team. We also heard from the lead investigator in this case, we heard from Detective Sergeant Catherine Dan talking about the charges that have been laid and what happens at this point. We know that lawyers for all five players appeared via video in a London courtroom. That was the first hearing in the case this morning. The players were not present and the case was adjourned to April 30th. So what do we know about what evidence has been put forward, what evidence might be put forward and how things will unfold from here? Well, joining me on the line to talk more about this is David Butt. David Butt was a Crown attorney from 1989 to 2002, now works as a defence lawyer in Toronto. Thank you so much for taking some time today. My pleasure. I know that you are not directly involved in this case, but can you take us through disclosure? There was some talk of that earlier today. It's expected that the lawyers for the men who have been charged with sexual assaults will be sending them evidence. They will be actually, sorry, be given the evidence that has been collected. When we talk about disclosure, how does that actually work? Sure. Uh, First of all, the defense Uh, of any accused person is entitled to receive everything that the investigators have gathered during the course of their investigation that is possibly relevant. So it's quite a wide net, and the obligation to provide that is proactive. The defense doesn't have to justify why they should get it. The uh, investigators have to provide it to the Crown proactively, and the Crown prosecutor then does have to provide it to the defense. And that process is what occupies the bulk of time at the beginning of the case. Uh, Collating, gathering together, and providing all of that material that has been initially gathered by the investigators during their investigation. And it came up in the news conference earlier today about the fact that the probe first started up after after the alleged incident in 2018, that it was then dropped in 2019. And the, um, the police chief talked about the fact that officers determined at that point that there were insufficient grounds to lay charges. Uh, it was um, investigated again. And I think that the detective sergeant, the lead investigator, talked about this, that that the evidence that will be put forward, it will go back for, to the original investigation, even though that didn't lead to charges. Is that, is that d- strange to have that happen? Or, I, I mean, there's a lot of things about this case that uh, seem different, but the fact that we're talking about two investigations kind of blending into one? Yes, it, it is a little bit unusual, but uh, in terms of what the disclosure obligation is, that's very clear that the police are obliged to proactively provide everything that they looked at in both the first and the second investigation. In other words, the defense has to have everything that the investigators considered, uh, regardless of when they considered it, and regardless of whether it initially did or did not lead to charges. Uh, In one of the reports uh, that TSN has put out about this, uh, according to TSN, there is video of the alleged victim saying that the sex was consensual and and, and some other snippets of video. How could that be used by by both Crown and the defense? 
yes, both both parties will be looking very carefully at, at video. And uh, if, for example, and, and I haven't seen it and I don't know the content, but if, for example, the video does appear to, to be an expression of consent to sexual activity, that would be something that the defense would argue is determinative. It's right on video, there's consent. On the other hand, the prosecution may say, and again, this depends on how long the video is, how much of the evening it depicts, the uh, uh, Crown might argue that that video is not determinative because it's only a small snippet of a broader evening and a lot of things happened off camera that are necessary to understand the full picture. And if you look at the full picture, the Crown might argue there is not actual consent despite what might be shown on a short video. Is this something then, when we look at cases like this, we know obviously it is the five men who are charged. They are the ones who potentially will go on trial. But is that where the defense tries to go after the character of a victim? It it is certainly something that the defense uh, team would always look at. Is there a viable line of attack on the character of a, of a of a complainant in a sex case, but uh, our courts have recently put limits on the extent to which one can attack someone's character in a sex case. The, the Supreme Court has recognized that these cases are extremely traumatic for complainants to come forward and report. They often go unreported because the justice process is just too punishing or perceived as too punishing. So the courts have tried to limit very much character attacks. Some are uh, permitted, but they will have to be very carefully considered and carefully tailored. Is that something that changed after uh, another high-profile case? And I think people will remember uh, the trial of former CBC personality Jean Gomeshi. Uh, I know changes were made after that case, but are there also similarities between the, the case now and that one? Uh, the um, changes, you're quite right. Um, the Supreme Court of Canada has come down more strongly in favor of ensuring that complainants are not um, harassed and, and bullied in the witness box when they testify. And Parliament has changed some laws to tighten up what kinds of character attacks can be launched. And those all took place, all those changes have taken place after the Gameshi trial. We saw a few things in the in the late uh, 20 teens, where, for example, the Me Too movement, a lot of journalistic work, uh, for example, by Robin Doolittle in The Globe, uh, bringing to light flaws in police investigations. So the Gameshi case was one example of uh, illustrating the need for improved courtroom procedures. And there have been a, a number of others as well, and that has led to some changes. And if this case does go to trial, is it something where, is it even possible to know at this point how that would unfold in that? Would it be one trial with all of the accused together or would each person be tried separately? Or or do we know even those kind of the mechanics of it, if it would be a judge alone trial or a jury trial? All those decisions are yet to be either made or communicated to the public if they are made. So uh, just for example, whether it's a jury or a judge alone, it is the accused person who can uh, make that election or choice. And uh, I'm sure that has been discussed privately in the, within the defense tent, uh, but certainly nothing uh, public has been announced about that yet. Those decisions will be made soon. And the same thing w- with whether it's 
one trial or five trials. Uh, there are reasons, um, you know, that kind of lean one way versus the other. Uh, it's certainly more efficient to have one trial, and you certainly don't want to, if you can avoid it, put a complainant having through the, the rigors of testimony five times. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there may be considerations of trial fairness for the accused people that compel there to be separate trials. Those are all issues that are yet to be uh, announced in public or, if necessary, litigated in front of a judge. And could there be a scenario, or do you think, would, would discussions be be either taking place now or will take place where uh, they, they're they trying to get an accused or more one or two of the accused to accept a deal that looking for testi- testimony that could work for the Crown? Or are, th- are those types of things likely happening? That is always something that uh, one looks at. Whenever you have multiple people charged in relation to one incident or one transaction, uh, one always must consider the possibility. Are there some people who might be willing out of uh, self-interest to make a deal in, in exchange for testimony? So sure, that's something that would be considered. It tends to be a, a less fruitful avenue of exploration in, in sex cases because Sex cases tend to be very uh, one side or the other. It, it was consensual or it wasn't. And so there isn't often the room to maneuver and to cut those kinds of deals. But you don't overlook that possibility. You always consider it. What kind of a penalty does a sexual assault conviction carry? Uh, it, it is in the nature of years. And uh, it would not be one year It would if it was a, a full sexual assault. Uh, again, depending on a lot of factors like the impact on the victim of the sexual assault, the nature of the act, whether there is any additional violence or degradation. But the, the penalty could be um, in, in the low range of single digits. So three to five years is a typical range that we look at. All right. Well, David, but thank you so much for joining us and for talking about some of the finer points and what we might see in this case. We'll leave it there for today. But again, I appreciate your time. Glad to help out. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till three on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.